April 30th, 1943, near Huelva, Spain. A local fisherman discovers a body that is washed ashore. The body belonged to one Captain William Martin, an officer in the British Royal Marines, and had apparently come to this place after his plane had been shot down in recent days. Attached to his person was a leather briefcase containing sensitive documents and personal correspondence between generals regarding an upcoming Allied invasion of Sicily. The authorities were notified and the body retrieved by Spanish officials. Over the ensuing days, the Nazi leadership would put ever-increasing pressure on Spain to give them the briefcase and its contents. On May the 5th, the Spanish acceded to the pressure, handing over photographs of the contents of the briefcase, and they took an envelope found in the briefcase, removed the documents contained inside, made copies to hand over the Nazis, and very carefully reinserted them into the envelope, never once breaking the wax seal. Once everything was back in order, they turned the briefcase over to the British consulate as they had found it, and the Nazis were now in possession of Allied plans. John chapter number 11 this morning. John chapter 11, as we continue our study through the Gospel of John. And last week we had looked at the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This week we're going to pick up in verse number 45 of John chapter 11. It says, Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this he spake not of himself. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples." And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple, What think ye, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment that if any man knew where he was, he should show it, that they might take him. The first thing that we'll notice this morning is a contrast that is drawn here in verse number 45 and 46. We see a contrast that is drawn. In verse number 45, it says, Then many of the Jews 
which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. So the first group of people that we see here presented to us in verse number 45 is a group of people who believe on Jesus. They believed him. The verse says that they saw the things. They had come to comfort Mary. They had come to weep with her over the death of Lazarus. They had heard that Lazarus had passed away and they had gathered together to to be there to support Mary, to comfort her. And you remember, if you were here last week, you remember from the text there, uh, a couple verses above here in John chapter 11, that Jesus had been coming to Mary and Martha. And Martha had heard that and she had gone out and she had spoken with Jesus and then she went back to the house and she told Mary that Jesus was on his way. And you remember from the text, Mary gets up and she runs out to go to Jesus and the crowd of people that had gathered there together with her to weep and to mourn over the passing of Lazarus, they go chasing after her. They, they assumed that she was going to the grave to, to weep. And they follow after her and we saw that scene at Lazarus' tomb. As Mary comes and Jesus goes with her and Martha to the tomb and commands them to roll the stone away and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And this whole group of people that had come from Jerusalem to mourn with Mary and with Martha, they were present. They saw all of this happen. They see these things. There in verse number 45, they came, which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did. So certainly many of these folks, they had seen miracles that Jesus had done in the past, but specifically what John is referencing to in this case, is the miracle that had just happened. They saw Jesus raise a man who had been dead for four days, raise him back to life. And Lazarus came hopping out of the grave, waddling out of the grave, however he did it, bound hand and foot in his grave clothes. They saw that. And because of what they saw, the text tells us that they believed on Jesus Now, certainly, that would be an astounding event. To see someone that you know is dead, someone who's been locked in a grave with a stone rolled in front of it for four days, and to watch as Jesus raises that person to life. It'd be an impressive thing. It'd be an astounding thing. And many of these people, they were taken back by it, and they noticed, they recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. They believed on him. So we see that many believed. But you'll notice, not only did many believe, but in verse number 46, there were some that did not. And a contrast is drawn in verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Now you've got to wonder, because the first group of people, they came to comfort Mary and Martha. They came to weep with her over Lazarus. The second group of people was the same. They came from Jerusalem. They came to weep with Mary and Martha. The first group of people, they saw the things which Jesus did. The second group of people, they also were there. They also saw the things which Jesus did. They saw Lazarus raised from the dead. They heard the same things that the first group of people heard as well. But this group of people, rather than believing on Jesus... They do not believe. They go their ways, the Bible says there in verse 46, to the Pharisees. 
And they tell the Pharisees the things that Jesus has done. Now you've got to wonder what made the difference between these two groups of people. What makes the difference between people who see the same thing and those who believe on him and those who do not? I think we'll see a little bit later on in the text something that indicates what was in their hearts. So we see a contrast is drawn between these two groups of people. But we see then that a council is formed to consider. In verse number 47, it says, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council, and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. So we see in verse number 47, this council is formed. They hear the report from this group of people who were there. They saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They've, of course, they've been angry with Jesus. They've been desiring to get rid of him for quite a while at this point in the Gospel of John. At this point in the Gospel of John, we're mere weeks from Jesus being crucified. Jesus' death is not far from this event. And so they form this council to figure out what to do. They've heard the report of Lazarus being raised from the dead. We see that the council is formed, but then we see their consideration. They ask this question of themselves there in verse 47, what do we? That was the, the purpose statement of their council, the reason why they gathered the Pharisees and the high priests together. You know, if they'd made a banner for their council, it would have been, what do we? That was their, their mission statement. What are we going to do about Jesus? You see what they say there in verse number 47, for this man doeth many miracles. They recognize that Jesus was legitimately doing miracles. They recognized that Jesus was doing things that could not be explained away from a fleshly perspective. But yet, they will not believe on him. You notice what they say then in verse number 48. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him. Now you've got to scratch your head and wonder, well, if all men are going to believe on him, why don't you? Why don't you believe on him? Why are you hardening your hearts over these miracles that you are, you're giving credit to him for? You've got to remember, these are the people who, they're the religious leaders of the nation of Israel. This is the high priests and the Pharisees. They're, they're the ones who are to be leading the nation in following after God. They are the ones who know the scriptures. And yet, as Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to do more and more miracles rather than follow after him, rather than believe upon him, it seems as if their hearts get harder and harder and harder. Not only do they say there in verse number 48 that if they don't do something, if they don't do something about Jesus, all men are going to believe on him, but they go on, they elaborate some more, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And I think that that statement right there kind of drills down to the heart of the matter. It drills down to the, the heart of the situation. Why did these men not believe? Well, if we allow Jesus to continue, we're going to lose our place. 
Now, what, what is their place? Oh, well, these men had a place of power. They had a place of influence. They had a place of being the ones who were in charge of the nation. The high priest and the Pharisees. Yes, they were religious, but you have to remember that the nation of Israel was a theocracy. And so they were the ones who were in power. Yes, they were ruled over by the Romans, but they had a good thing going. These were the guys who wielded the power in the halls of Jerusalem. They were concerned that if Jesus continued, they were going to lose their place and that they were going to lose their nation. In the midst of all of this, they didn't truly believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was going to usher in the kingdom, that he was going to run the Romans out. They didn't think that Jesus was able to do that, and they were afraid that they were going to lose the good things that they had going on. You know, we can stop for a moment and just notice and recognize that today, that is a reason why many people will not turn to Jesus. You know, many people will not truly turn to Jesus. Many people will not give their lives over to Him because they recognize that in order to do so, they have to give over control. They have to let go of their life. They have to let go of their place, their position, and they have to surrender that to Him. Following after Jesus can be offensive to our flesh. So we see the council's formation. We see their consideration but then you'll notice Caiaphas's answer there in verse number 49. And one of them named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all. That's a pretty blunt statement. I don't think Caiaphas was trying to win, win friends and influence people with his statement there. It's just like, guys, you know nothing at all. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. But he goes on there in verse number 50, Nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. So apparently, as these men are discussing, you know, what are we going to do? That's their, their question as they form this group. What do we? They're not sure what to do with Jesus. They, they notice that Jesus is doing these many miracles. They notice that a crowd has begun to follow after Jesus. And they're torn. They're torn with what to do. What do we do? How do we deal with him? We can't just let him be. It's going to ruin everything if we just let Jesus continue. So we have to do something. But what do we do? And Caiaphas, he's not bashful about it at all. He just says, well, we got to kill him. It's expedient that one man die and that the whole nation perish not. He's got the answer. Caiaphas knows what to do. But we're given this insight into Caiaphas and his answer. Because though he believes he has the answer and he's told the other guys, ye know nothing at all, I think we find in the text that really Caiaphas doesn't know as much as he thinks he knows either. It's interesting there, verse number 51, and he spake... And this he spake, or this spake he, sorry, I'll get it right. And this spake he, what does it say? Not of himself. So the words that Caiaphas is saying here, they're not the words that he came up with on his own. He's not, this isn't a, an original idea with Caiaphas. 
But John reveals to us why is Caiaphas saying this? But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation. So Caiaphas is saying all of this, but really, it's from God. Because of his position, God is using him to prophesy about the fact that Jesus is going to be crucified. Caiaphas has this great answer. You know, we're going we're gonna to kill Jesus. We're going to solve it. We're going to squash people who follow Jesus. No one's going to want to follow him now. We're just going gonna to eradicate people who follow Jesus. That religion, gone. Caiaphas thought that he had it all figured out. So we see a contrast is drawn, a council we can consider, and then we see that they hatch a conspiracy. Verse number 53. After Caiaphas gives his input, they've argued about it a little bit, and Caiaphas gives his answer. Then from that day forth, they took counsel together for to put him to death. So it seems like after Caiaphas' answer that they agreed. Yeah, we need to kill him. So their, their counsel now, their purpose statement has changed from what do we to murder him. We've got to kill him. We've got to come up with a way to eradicate Jesus. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it anymore. We know exactly what we need to do. We see a conspiracy is hatched. This group of men have conspired together to kill Jesus. Why? Because he's done miracles? That's originally why they, they called this council together, right? They're, they're concerned that because Jesus is doing miracles that people are going to follow him and they're going to lose their place. They have no legitimate reason to kill Jesus, but yet... That's their conspiracy, to kill him. We see then in verse number 54, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. So Jesus, knowing the pressure, knowing that it's not yet quite time, the Passover hasn't arrived yet, Jesus departs to a wilderness area, and he walks no more openly among the Jews. And you know, in a sense, that's sad. In a sense, it's sad because the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people in that nation, had experienced wonderful blessing as Jesus walked openly among them. Jesus had been preaching openly to them. Many people had been able to hear him. Jesus had been healing those who were sick. He had been healing those who were lame. He had been giving sight to those who were blind. He had been blessing. He had been breaking bread and feeding 5,000 people in a desert place who had come to hear him. Oh, there were many benefits that they experienced from Jesus walking openly among them. And it's sad in a sense that now Jesus has to cease. But in another sense, it's a fulfillment of what had to happen for the next stage. So we see Jesus departs to the wilderness, and then we see the search for Jesus. In verse 55, the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand, and many went out of the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So we see the, the context. We see the scene is set. The Passover is at hand. 
The Jewish people are they're gathering to Jerusalem. They're making preparations. Of course, if you think back to the Old Testament, when the Passover was initiated, there were many preparations in which, or that they had to take in order to celebrate the feast of Passover. They had to, to clean their house from top to bottom and get rid of all of the leaven in their house. They had to purify themselves. And so all of these preparations are beginning to take place. And in verse number 56, Then sought they for Jesus, and spake among themselves as they stood in the temple. So you can picture this group of guys, these Pharisees, the high priests. They're all standing in the temple. They're off over in a corner. And they're whispering among themselves. You think Jesus is going to come up for the, the feast? You think he's going to be here for the Passover? Well, of course he's going to be. He, he always has been. He's... He's Jewish. He follows our feast days. Oh, that'll, that'll be great. We'll watch for him. We know he's coming. You see there in verse number 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a commandment. So they, they issue this statement. They send it out to all their followers. And here's the commandment. That if any man, if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. So they're, they're certain that Jesus is going to be coming for this feast, and they send out a commandment among all their followers, hey guys, if anybody knows where Jesus is, you better let us know, or else, because we need to get rid of him. It's time. So they've got this grand conspiracy that they've hatched, and all things seem to be somewhat dark. The religious establishment has aligned themselves against Jesus They've got a plan to fix the problem. They've got a plan to eradicate Jesus. They're going to take care of the issue. They're going to deal with it. And certainly for the followers of Jesus Christ, it must have seemed like a dark hour. They couldn't hardly show their faces in Jerusalem. They were worried about people that they knew on the periphery, people that they weren't sure about if they truly were followers of Jesus or not, people who might turn Jesus in. Certainly they were concerned about these things. And so we see this conspiracy that was hatched. On May the 5th, the Spanish acceded to the pressure, handing over the photographs of the contents of the briefcase. They took an envelope found in the briefcase, removed the documents contained inside, and made copies to hand over to the Nazis very carefully reinserted them into the envelope, never once breaking the wax seal. Once everything was back in, over, they, back in order, they turned over the briefcase to the British consulate as they had found it, supposedly, and the Nazis were now in possession of the Allied plans. There were several things that were not as they seemed, though. And not just the documents that were still sealed in an envelope as though they had not been seen by anyone's prying eyes. You see, Captain Martin was not the real name of the man whose body had washed ashore. In fact, he had never been a captain in the Royal Marines. In fact, he had never even worn the uniform of service for his country. He hadn't been in a plane that was shot down just off the coast of Spain, in fact, absolutely nothing was as it seemed. The entire thing, codenamed Operation Mincemeat, was a ruse that had been hatched in order to deceive the Nazis 
into transferring troops away from Sicily to allow for an easier Allied invasion. The plan went so well, it was so well conceived and executed that the Nazis fell for it, never discovering the subterfuge. On July 9th of 1943, the Allied forces would invade Sicily, and even four hours into their attack, the Nazis would send 21 aircraft away from Sicily, they would take off from Sicily, and be diverted over to Sardinia, one of the areas that was detailed in the fake documents as the focus of the Allied attack. You see, oftentimes everything is not as it seems. In that situation in 1943, it was not as it seemed. As we consider our text today, we can see that things seemed bleak and dark. They seemed like they were out of control for Jesus and his disciples. In fact, in the coming days, the high priests and Pharisees' plan would culminate in Jesus being crucified. In Jesus being put to death, it would seem as if they had won. But things are not always as they seem. We notice, first of all, this morning, a contrast that was drawn. We saw a council to consider and a conspiracy that was hatched, but last of all this morning, we'll notice a control that remained. A control that remained. You see, in the midst of the high priests and Pharisees' agitation against Jesus, they thought, we've got it figured out. We've got a plan. We can fix this. They needed to keep people from believing in Jesus, and they thought that the best way to handle that was to kill him. It would seem as if Jesus was going to lose. In fact, he would be crucified not many days hence. Judas would betray Jesus. Their plan there, if any man knew where he was, he should show it that they might take him. The plan was going to work. Jesus was going to be taken. He was going to be put on trial. And they were going to sway Pilate to crucify him. But you know the truth was, It wasn't as it seemed. You see, the Pharisees and the high priests, they came together, they hatched this council, and they they formed this great conspiracy. But they failed to pay attention to Scripture. Because their conspiracy was part of a greater conspiracy. A divine conspiracy, if you will. You see, they thought that they were masterminds, they thought that they were moving the pawns on the board and that they were in control of everything that was going on, but they had failed to heed the best-kept secret, or should I say the worst-kept secret, that all of them should have known, for it was revealed in the Scriptures called God's plan of redemption. You see, Jesus' death, his crucifixion, was prophesied many, many times in scriptures. These guys should have known this. And in the midst of their thinking that they were in control, God was the one who was really in control. God was the one who was using their wickedness, their sinfulness to accomplish His divine purpose. God was allowing all of this to take place. You see, Caiaphas didn't know what he was saying as he spoke. But he was prophesying of the wonderful grace of God. He was prophesying of the fact that through Jesus, 
whosoever will may come. If you look back in the text to his prophecy there, he says, ye know nothing at all, verse 50, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. This he spake, not of himself, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. What a wonderful wonderful thing. That in the midst of these dark hours, in the midst of things seemingly out of control, here's Caiaphas prophesying of the fact that Jesus would gather all unto himself. That Jesus would die for the sins of the world. That whosoever will may come. Wonderful, wonderful grace of Jesus. Have you availed yourself of that grace this morning? Have you ever come to a place of recognizing that Jesus' death is for you? That he died on that cross for you? That he died, one man died, for the sins of the whole world? That the whole world perish not? You see, this morning, each of us were born in sins. We are born dead in our trespasses and sins. But Jesus has come. He has come that you and I might have life through him. This morning, have you come to Jesus? Or are you as the high priests and the Pharisees, holding tightly onto your place, your position, control of your life, thoughts of your own ability or righteousness or way to make yourself right with God? This morning, come to Jesus. You know... To the eyes of the flesh, for the followers of Jesus, things seemed out of control. Seem, things seemed to be dark and bleak. But the truth was, the truth is, that everything was right on schedule. That God is still in control. That, yes, Jesus was going to die. Their plan was going to work out. They were going to pat themselves on the back and think, we got it. But three days later, their plan was going to fall apart. The, the wheels were going to fall off the wagon as Jesus comes out of that tomb victorious over death. This morning, child of God, may we recognize the fact that Jesus is in control. Sometimes situations in our lives might seem as if he's not. May we not be tempted to look at life, to look at our circumstances, to look at things through the eyes of the flesh, but may we always be informed by Scripture, by the fact that God is in fact in control. That if you and I love Him as we ought to, He works out all things for our good. May we live our lives in faith toward Him, in recognition of the fact that He's worthy of us doing so. For he is in control. The reality this morning is that everything is not as it seems. We can look around this world and think that God's not in control, but he is. Everything's right on schedule. Everything's right on time.
And we ought to remind ourselves often in Scripture of the fact that He is on the throne. That He is in control.